Hey, everybody. Before we get to our episode today, I wanted to share with you about an exciting movie that is coming out on September 17th. It is called Blue Bayou. It's from award-winning writer and director Justin Chan, who also stars in the movie Blue Bayou. It is the moving and timely story of a uniquely American family fighting for the future. It stars a character named Antonio LeBlanc, a Korean-American adoptee raised in a small town in the Louisiana Bayou, who's married to the love of his life, Kathy, and stepdad to their beloved daughter, Jessie. Struggling to make a better life for his family, he must confront the ghosts of his past when he discovers that he could be deported from the only country he has ever called home. It's inspired by true events, and Blue Bayou shines an important light on the impact our immigration policies have on American families today. Blue Bayou stars Justin Chan and Alicia Vikander and is in theaters starting September 17th. For tickets and more information, visit BlueBayouFilm.com and listen to the Blue Bayou interview episodes on Dear Asian Americans, Korean American Parenting, and The Chanchi Show. Thanks, and here now is our episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Asian Americans and uh, wherever you are and whenever you might be listening to us. Uh, first and foremost, we wish you all the health and safety in the world as we continue, uh, surprisingly, to continue to deal with COVID and subsequent outbreaks. And where, where our guest is today in New York and where I am in LA, um, mask mandates, vaccination mandates. So do your part. Please get vaccinated. Please continue to mask up, stay indoors. You can listen to this podcast or go get Anna's book and read it instead of going out and putting yourself at risk and maybe buy a couple extra copies for a friend or 10. I've certainly enjoyed reading our, our guest's uh, book um, that just came out. And so really, really excited to to learn a little bit more of a personal story of our guest today. Um, Anna Q joins us from New York City. She is an author. Uh, she's a storyteller. And then she's got one hell of a story that she just published in her recent memoir uh, called Made in China. And so uh, without further ado, uh, Anna, welcome to The Asian Americans. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you. Your book came out last week. How how are you and how are you doing with the response from the book release and all that comes with putting your story out there publicly? Yeah, it's been an incredible experience. You know, really uh, every type of experience you can think of, I've sort of gone through, mostly because after the book was sold, most of my time prior to the publication of the book was spent in isolation uh, during COVID. So uh, I had a lot of silence around me. Um, so there was a lot of tension building up to the book launch. And I was really excited to have an in-person event, though, you know, um, I think the day of just the idea of potential risk and the variant made things a little bit, a little bit more challenging than if the variant wasn't so scary right now. But overall, it's it's just, I am just very, very happy with the reception it's getting, um, the empathy, the um, conversations it's starting, and um, how timely it is as well. Timely indeed. Just shared with you offline, you know, I, I spent a, a few years of my high school life in New York City. And so, you know, hearing about your experiences and your storytelling, particularly in some of the locales that are very familiar to me mm -hmm. hit home. And I know that it will hit home for, for so many of, of our listeners. Let's brag about you for a little bit. The <laughs> book came out last week. 
Chanel Miller mm -hmm. said some wonderful things through her review for the New York Times Book Review, yes. Time Magazine, Good Morning America, Oprah Daily, South China Morning Post, Kirkus, all just glowing reviews of, of what an amazing and yet just tough, at least for me, it was extremely tough to, um, I, I listened to it, but it was really tough to listen to because I, I think you could feel this tension between anger and love and how do you interpret both simultaneously at, at times. Before we get to talking about your story, where did the idea come to write the book and to memorialize it? Because it's it's not an easy story to tell. And, and I know, you know, you you are trained in writing, but wh where did the idea, was there something or somebody that nudged you to actually put your life story on paper? I would say that, you know, one of my earliest memories, one of my happiest memories is probably going to the library in Queens, the Albendale Library. That was my local branch. And reading was um, such a wonderful escape for me. Um, and, you know, I think while going through so many difficult um, challenges in my childhood, I really needed that escapism. And I found it in books and in stories. And so I've always, always loved the, the medium of storytelling. I like TV as well. So it's not just books. But the book came about, I started the book in 2000 and 10, I want to say, um, as I was getting ready to enter into my grad school days at Sarah Lawrence. And, you know, I've always wanted to write, I've always wanted to write this memoir. And it was more about what part, what angle, how to tell it, um, if I had enough distance to tell it. You know, I've, I've lived what I think stereotypically is the you know, on paper, uh, a, a good immigrant story um, or the model, model minority myth, right? But I think in so many other ways, my life was super secretive and super, um, I, I lived a very silenced life, both from the perspective of my family, but also this perspective of being a Chinese immigrant growing up in Queens and sort of the understanding of the adults around me and the community I was surrounded with. So the pressures of those two combined, I think, forced me to bury a lot of my childhood in a way that I've never been okay with, but have always felt. And so writing for me at a very early age was just being able to have a voice. And the first time everything was written down on paper was the first time, you know, in a lot of ways, I allowed myself to exist in a way that was true to who I was. And um, what I mean by that is, you know, I spent almost 10 years writing the book and I would say the third person to read it was my agent, which means I kept this book so close to my heart and I really didn't want anyone's feedback or opinion or, you know, thoughts on it because I had lived such a siloed, silenced childhood. And I wanted to protect the story because of all the adversaries I had faced um, since I came from China at the age of seven. Thank you for sharing that. I, I think one of the things that 
I continue to learn hosting this show and meeting uh, such a vast, diverse group of Asian Americans whose stories are oftentimes so different than the upbringing that I had, which uh, continue to be reminded of, of how privileged I was and how different circumstances are completely out of anybody's control. But it is a reminder that the people that you see, whether they are friends in college or people that you now meet well into our adulthood, you really have no idea what it means to have been that person growing up. And, and you brought up the model minority term, but I, I also, I think in, in your story, it was anything but because academics was not prioritized, nor was it encouraged, but rather just the obsession over the survivalist mindset of economic output through work at an early age, I think is, is sort of what, what I gather from your story. So, you know, this is an interesting interview because you told your story in the book. And so I'm very familiar with your, your story, at least uh, uh, as much as you felt comfortable sharing out to the world via your book, but would love to hear from you and then to sort of roll the clock back into sort of, you know, Anna's uh, Chinese American journey. Um, how did you and your family become Chinese American under what circumstances? And, and then tell us about the earlier years of your uh, life here in the States. Oh, I love this question. I'm so fascinated by personal history that I love talking about this stuff. My mother and my father were married. I don't necessarily think that my mother wanted to marry my father, but it was sort of her best option at the time. I grew up and we come from a very poor family in Windsor. I think we're poor on my mother's side. My mother's always my mother's family has always been poor for I think it's been generations that we've been poor. And I and um that poverty the reason I pointed out is because it it really affects so much of the reasons behind the decisions that came about with my family. So my father died when I was one year old, so very early, my mother went to my father's side of the family, took me with her to ask them to help us, and they sort of wouldn't. Because of that, my mother has sort of <laughs> been very angry with them and really cut off our relationship with them after she came to the United States and after I came to the United States. But the one thing that did come out of marrying my father and one of the things that convinced my mother to marry him was that he had a sister in America. And that is how she came to the United States. So she left me with my grandparents for five years from the age of one, um, I think I was 17 months old, to seven. And you know, my, my grandparents put in a landline and she called every two weeks and, a, and you know, for a few minutes and they were just awful conversations because you could barely hear one another, everyone screaming. And, um, you know, it was always two questions like, um, did you eat? <laughs> How's, listen to your grandmother. Do you have enough clothes? You know, it was always those questions. And I I didn't really even understand who she was at that point. Like, why is this person always calling me and asking me about these questions? And so that was sort of my relationship with her until she flew back to get me with my stepfather. And we, you know, she, she took me from my grandparents and then I came to Queens. And that's where I spent the next 10 years of my life. And when I came to Queens, I entered into my stepfather's family. So he 
is Taiwanese, comes from a middle class, maybe upper middle class background. And he owned a sweatshop that my mother worked at when she first came. So she married him, they had two kids, and then she came back for me. And, um, you know, that was her achieving the American dream in a lot of ways. And, you know, I was told a lot uh, about what to be grateful for growing up in Queens, being in a, in a really protected situation in, in, on one hand, because um, my mother had married into a middle-class family. We were living, you know, in Whitestone's, oh, in Whitestone in a, in a house with, you know, four bedrooms, which was such a contrast to every other member of my mother's family. So her immediate siblings, um, she's the youngest of five. And, you know, she was the only one that came here legally. And I was the only one that followed her legally. So there's just a huge disparity. And I think, you know, she was afraid a lot uh, while I was growing up. She was afraid of the dynamic I was creating within this new marriage that she felt very grateful for. And she, you know, I think made a lot of decisions out of fear and out of trying to protect this unit of family. But it, for to me, it felt like she was protecting them against me. And, you know, it, it caused a lot of issues in my childhood. And um, at one point, she sent me to work in the factory. And, and that's what the book is about. The book is about this moment of betrayal of calling child services on my mother, basically, on my family, on this family that brought me to America that felt that I needed to be grateful. And yet I did not feel grateful. And I felt like I didn't want to be a part of this family. I find I'm, I'm trying to I'm having a difficult time finding the words because I, I think not just my own, but when we continue to hear the word gratitude in light of coming to America. Yes. Sacrifice what is to be made of that sacrifice and, and who gets to decide what the result of that sacrifice is. It's been quite a long journey for me and for so many of us to realize that it's not so black and white. Absolutely. Being grateful does not excuse all the other BS that sometimes comes along with this and that survival and the pursuit of survival does not excuse or does it negate anything else that we perhaps should consider important? You know, I think we're in, in our generation, obviously your book is also a, a story of discovering your importance and need for mental health. You talk about openly in your book, talking to your therapist now and, and then, and then how foreign it was and how scary it was. But those are things that people of perhaps our parents or even older generation would not even have considered even an idea because we're just looking to survive. Every day is tough. Every bit, every day is struggling. And combining that with, and I know there's not complete overlap, but a lot of similarities between Chinese and Korean cultures as well, this sort of always being humble and not bragging and always making it seem like things are not going well. And so when somebody asks you how you're doing, it's always, oh man, it's tough. It's tough. You know, business is always tough. And in and, and a way to seem it, to make it seem humble, but at the same time, it continues to re-perpetuate this notion that 
you should just be grateful for the opportunities that you have. Yes. This is why this is fascinating to me, right? Like, yes, that's absolutely what we deal with. But that that sort of projection of, oh, business isn't great comes from trauma. It comes from growing up in a place, in a communist place, to be honest, in a place where if you were doing good, people were going to ask you for favors and take things away from you. So that's actually the reality of it, right? So um, that's part of the reason I felt like I also needed to write a very sympathetic character for my mother, because there are reasons for why they are the way they are. There are reasons why they are still surviving, in a way that maybe for our generation isn't necessary. So we have to figure out a way to let th- those things go. But for, for older generations, they, they're still holding on to these ideas for their dear life. And I don't understand it either. I have no idea. It, it's really funny because like my mom tells me their business is doing terrible, but I, from everyone else, they're like, doing very well. Right. So it's, and I'm like, why do I even ask my mother this question anymore? I know she's not going to be honest with me. And then I begin to wonder, oh my God, is she protecting her family against me? Which has always been, you know, a painful question for me, right? Like, are you, my mom, my mom's always been very concerned about the resources I was taking up. So it, it gets so complicated, so complicated. I, I don't think it's hard at all for anybody reading the book to instantly get behind you and and go through the roller coasters of emotions of anger, sadness, and frustration. Because I think a, a part of that is is also this sort of the justification of things that happen in your life where you I don't want to use the word manipulation but a little bit of that perhaps into getting you to believe that terrible things were justified and and so uh so you said you've spent the first 10 years of of your life uh in queens tell us about the circumstances that led to you spending a summer back in china and how an odd you know a series of circumstances actually forced your mom's hand and brought you back which (laughs) if, if that didn't happen then none of this we don't have this conversation and there is no book and, yes. and who knows where, where you'd be. Yeah. And that, that the irony of writing the second half of the book was not lost on me. Um, yeah. So I felt like that had to be in the book. And I, I struggled with uh, putting that section in the book. Um, so, I mean, I think the sweatshop was such a pivotal moment and it was a a clear moment to see exactly what I was trying to get at with this book. But ultimately, you know, um, the difficulties of my childhood was there way before I was sent to the sweatshop in Queens. So what led up to my mother sending me to Xi'an is she had fired our maid while growing up. We did have a maid that did the cooking, cleaning, um, mostly taking care of my half-siblings. And so after she fired the maid, which was quite often, um, because my mother was not an easy boss, she basically gave all of those jobs and chores to me. And I was not very happy. Um, She thought I should be grateful, right, to be able to give back to this family, basically. 
And it just took over my life. It took over my life in the sense that as soon as I got out of school, I had to go pick my siblings up. I had to feed them. I had to make sure they played piano. I had to make sure they got snacks and did their homework. I had to make sure, you know, a a long list of chores was done. And by the time my mother came home and she had to do the cooking and I had to help her prepare, then I had to, you know, clean up all the dishes, clean up the table, wipe the, the floor on my hands and knees. And my, my mother's a little OCD. And just by the time I was, I was done with all the chores, it was bedtime, it was 10 o'clock. And I, I didn't have time to do homework. And I tried to make that clear with my mother, but she really didn't care. She didn't care because she thought it was an excuse. She didn't care because she never really thought education was very important, maybe. But I also understood that education for me and for my siblings were very different. The expectations were very different. And, you know, that really hurt me. That really hurt me because I had spent so many years trying to assimilate. I spent so many years not understanding the world around me, not understanding the homework assigned to me. And finally, I did. And so I wanted to do homework. I wanted to do well in school. So I, I, I decided to go downstairs and do my homework after bedtime, which was 10. So around 10.30, I snuck downstairs and started doing like, I don't know, it was like my Spanish homework. And, you know, most classes I could get away with not doing the assignment, but learning a second language like Spanish was, was difficult. Um, that in social studies, which, you know, had to do with a lot of history. So I you know, I took a risk. I didn't care. And um, my mother came down after me and I was very, very frightened when she found me working at the coffee table. I I didn't know what to do. I packed up immediately and I put my book bag where it was supposed to go, but she just kept following me. So I, 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 I decided to keep walking and I walked into the kitchen and I got some water and she was She just kind of was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm getting water. And she thought I was being smart with her. So she smacked me. (laughs) And um, I, I mean, you're an Asian, you know, you can never hit your parents. You can't, you cannot, you cannot (laughs) raise a hand to your parents. And I didn't raise a hand to my mother, but I did push her. And when I pushed her, she was like, oh, oh, you, you've grown balls. So she slaps me harder and again. And at that point, I had to make a decision. Was I going to push my mother again or was I not? And at that point, uh, you know, I, I pushed her again. And then two days later, um, she sent me to China. She sent me to Xi'an, which I had never been to. Um, and she sent me to live with this elderly couple, and it was the parents of someone that worked in her sweatshop. And uh, for a small fee, they took me in. And that was my punishment. And and so I was, I was sent there, uh, I was pulled out of school in May. So I basically didn't do anything and just was wandering around um, in Xi'an for a couple of months. And in October, I thought I would be able to come home and start the new year, but I, I couldn't. They, they put me in a boarding school. 
And that was really traumatizing too. I'm sure you and so many other <laughs> Asian Americans on listening will will relate to this, but I mean, I can't I can't write and read Chinese. Like I can't <laughs> be in eighth grade. Like I it was it was horrifying. I could barely understand the questions. Never mind figure out how to answer them. And so immediately I was completely in over my head. I couldn't keep up with any of the classes. And, you know, it was really an impossible situation for me. And I mean, I could speak Chinese, so thank God for that. But, you know, before I left China at seven, I, I didn't go to school. I didn't go to kindergarten. And um, so I, I didn't really have much of a place. Uh, I did go to Chinese school in Flushing, but it was very different. It was Sunday school for a couple of years, and it was actually in traditional Chinese. And suddenly, I was faced with a lot of simplified Chinese, and um, and then just thrown into this very, very competitive middle school, where it wasn't a guarantee that these kids were going to go to high school. They had to test in, so it was really competitive as well, and. You know, I was just this kid from Queens that had been sent away as punishment and was now forced to go to a boarding school. And this boarding school was huge. And like, yeah, it was a really crazy experience. I mean, you can imagine this was China back in the days. We had to brush our teeth like outside. There was like a mass area with the sink and you just took your little basin and your toothbrush and you went and brushed your teeth and, you know, did all of that with your classmates. And then you went back to the dorms and then you washed your feet, you know, before you go to bed. So it was like that kind of a situation, which was so far from, you know, and at that point I was 14. So it was literally, I, I had just, I had spent seven years of my life in China and, and then seven years in the United States. And so it was just a very, it was a tough experience for sure. And, um, and I was, luckily I was kicked out of school for kissing a boy on the cheek and he kissed me on the forehead. So, (laughs) so, um, yeah, when I came home, my promiscuity, (laughs) I was, I basically, I was, uh, kicked out for being promiscuous. And, um, when I was kicked out, there was no other school that would take me because it was sort of in the middle of a semester. And the old man that I was staying with, my fake year, year, as I called him, my fake grandfather, he stood up for me. He was really kind. He was basically like, she needs to go back home and be among her peers. Like this isn't, this isn't where she needs to be. And um, I feel very fortunate for that. And there's, there's a couple of characters in my book that I really there's been a lot of acts of kindness towards me that I've gotten along the way. And I think that comes through in the description in in the book and these characters, I I hope I've developed well. How much of going back to China and at that time, you must've thought that there was a a chance that it was indefinite, but but, uh, upon return, did that change your perspective on your identity at all? I, I know a lot of the book focuses on sort of your own survival and you're navigating 
actually trying to get out of this really nasty situation. But what we know of you now is from that, you're an author, you have an MFA, like you're, you've mastered the language and like author is in your title. And so you've made it work. You were the first person to not only go to college, but graduate school. How, how did that experience sort of solidify what it meant to be a Chinese American person? And, and I'll also remind the audience too, you spent that summer or ended up being a summer in Xi'an, which is a completely different part of China than where you grew up or where you call home. And it's in the middle of nowhere, really. Not nowhere, but it's in the middle of China. Yeah. Um, like, th did that change sort of your identity? I mean, New York City, especially Flushing in the Whitestone where, where you grew up, it's one of the most Asian places in America. How did sort of the identity piece come about for, for you in, in terms of your, your identity development? That's a really great question. You know, I, I grew up in a very traditional household. And this is something that I, I, I think is worth pointing out too, Jerry. It's that, you know, when our parents leave their respective countries and come here, they sort of exist in silo, right? Because they're no longer raising a kid among their peers in the country that they grew up in. And yet they're not really on trend with all of the parenting and rules in their new country. So sort of you grow up, you and I, we grow up in this very unique environment, right? It's almost dated to them as well because it's this weird space of how they think they should be parents. And there is no support for them in that way as well. And so I think that also factors in so much of our identity as immigrants, as first generation, as second generation. And it's a very unique identity because one thing I can tell you is like I have been back to China. Well, I was back to China in, in that period. And then I went back in 2018. And we have a, such a unique existence. There's not really any other experience like it, right? And maybe at some point it was parallel, but now it's not. We are our own unique experience, yeah. which I find really fascinating. So I do think that being forced back to China and growing up right around Flushing, that has in a lot of ways been a huge part of my identity. Also because my mother really kept me away from my extended family. And so what I got from flushing and growing up in New York is my Chinese American experience also. And um, when I was in China, it's a completely different experience. There's part of me that feels like I belong as well. But, you know, once I open my mouth, it's, 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 it's a completely different experience. Suddenly you're like, oh, I don't, I, I barely sound intelligent. I'm maybe seven years old when I talk. <laughs> and, you know, your brain just doesn't work as fast. And you're like, I can't find the words to half of these things I want to say. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a tough experience, I think, in reconciling with both the feeling and the actuality of being back there as an adult, right? And what China was to me at that age is so different from what China is to me now. And we can't go back. And so sure, there's parts of, you know, the nostalgia in this book is about going back because 
my life in America was not so kind to me. So I think there is a romantic size idea of what growing up in China was like with my grandparents in this book. But I don't think that that's untrue. I think that is true. Um, I think my family especially sacrificed a lot to survive. And I'm very fortunate in that I can turn around and look at all of that sacrifice. You know, there are people who just don't want to talk about the terrible things that, that have happened in our family and really just want to look forward. And all they do is promise this future, right? This bright future. And that's how they've survived. And now, and it's our generation's job to be like, no, this is the future. Yeah, so I have, you know, even within my Chinese American identity, there's so much that that I love about being Chinese American, that I love about my culture. And even though there was a lot of abuse in my family, I think I understand my family very well. So it's really hard to write this story because all of it's true. You know, there's not there's not really a part that's not true. I, I think what you've done through writing this book and, and doing things like sharing your story with me now is given a countless number of people a permission to dig up some stuff from their past to reevaluate what that actually meant. I, I think, you know, you mentioned something that's critically important because as, as you're, as I was reading your book and I'm sure other people too, there's just this sense of anger towards your, your mom. Right. And there were moments where you would justify some of the things that she would do or just eat it basically. And I'm like, why would you do that? And I think we always have to also constantly remind ourselves of the crap that they were born into, the things that they experienced. We talk about mental health now, but like our parents haven't dealt with that in any other way rather than to suppress it and to replace it with more work, money, the right purse or the right address or whatever it is. And so it's this really impossible task of I think coming to terms with admitting that some of the things that we were subject to was not proper, but at the same time, you or I at this point, Anna, would not be able to pack up our bags, go to a brand new country, be poor, and do half the things that our parents collectively in that generation did, and then have that next generation go get master's degrees and write books, right? Like that doesn't work. Timing obviously has a lot to do with it, but just, you know, it's hard. And so I, I think in in writing this book and, you know, you, you've processed or publishing takes a while, right? So, so um, from the time from the time you wrote the the, the pitch, the editing process, all that. And, and and now that it's out there and the time that you've had to let the story even marinate in your own mind and heart, have some of those feelings changed towards certain characters in that book? Not just your mother, but the other people who played a role in, in, in your childhood. Is it more anger, more empathy? Has that changed at all? Obviously, sitting through COVID has gotten us thinking about a whole lot of different things that yes. uh, we otherwise would not have. Where are you with that now? Um, I do have to say this book has given me a lot of closure. I think it's closure I've been seeking for a long time. You know, I I don't really have anyone in my family that I can really talk to about this, right? And so part of writing this book has been this conversation I've had with myself for the last 10 years. And while there is anger in the 
book, what I was trying to do and why it took 10 years is really to move past the anger and talk about what type of healing it is and how do we move on from that and, you know, what we can salvage. And in hindsight, it feels like a minor miracle. I cannot tell you just on so many levels. On one level is class in the sense that it's only because I grew up with in a middle-class family that has allowed me to get the kind of education I've gotten. So for better or worse, that, that is credit that was due to my parents. And um, obviously it's my own pursuit of college and grad school, but I, I don't think I would have been able to write this book. And I think a lot of people... Um, with the people that this book resonates with. Like, I'm not sure that they're going to be in a situation to write a book. It is a huge, <laughs> I mean, like, if you look at the history of writers, like most of them, you know, are relatively, um, come from relatively good families um, and are well enough to be, well off enough to to be writers. And that, you know, that's a class question. Um, the arts has always been a class question. And, and that's also been a really difficult path for me to take, you know. I wanted to get here with the publication of the book much earlier, but it takes as long as it takes. And, you know, you're saying that my accomplishment of publishing this book, two weeks ago, I didn't have this accomplishment. I was still the same person. So this is a very new accomplishment. And even though I've been working on it for so long, to be able to, to have this accomplishment is... It, it feels so special because I, you know, in hindsight, it's such a difficult path I've taken and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, Jerry. <laughs> but, you know, I think the idea of an immigrant becoming an artist in, in the same generation is somewhat rare because it's, it asks for a lot of opportunities. It asks for luck in some ways as well some talent, a lot of discipline, I would say, since I wrote most of this book while working full-time, and really a persistence that I'm not sure I know where, um, I don't know where it came from. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's the persistence of just having my story told for for being silenced for so long. I I think there's so much beauty in that because, I mean, you you mentioned class, but, you know, let's get honest about publishing in our country, right? Mm -hmm. It's very white. It is incredibly white. We, we don't get to tell our stories often. Um, I, I know readers can't see. Maybe you've listened long enough to know about my bookcase, but my bookcase behind me is racially organized, segregated bookcase. Uh, <laughs> but all these books are my Asian American authors. And then everything else below my arm, which is about 80%, are written by, you know, I, I read a lot of nonfiction generally, um, business type books. And so they're written by, you know, average white dudes who have always been told that you know, they have what it takes to write a book that they should be listened to, that they should monetize their thought leadership, which is regurgitated things that other guys have written about, right? And so what, what, what I hope your story also inspires other people to do is not just reevaluate or revisit some of their own childhood and thinking about how that has impacted their own journey, but just to tell their story, period. That's why I do what I do here. I, I too, am in the process of, you know, writing my book proposal. and. Yeah, it's it's been a process. Um, but, yes, it's not you know, easy. Book proposals are like the worst. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, it's terrible. Charles, Charles, if you're listening, sorry, it's taken a while. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's I, I think just this notion of having this belief that your story not only matters, but taking it a few extra levels to say it matters to the point that it should be wildly and widely publicized. And then this is a story, you know, I think at... I have a hard, you know, I have a really hard time with the abuse in this book. I have a hard time because I don't, obviously, as any other human being, I don't want to go on air or in a book talk, airing dirty laundry and talking bad about my family, which is what they think it is. And, And that's been a really big struggle, right? So, you know, one of the scenes, the, the, the one beating scene in this book I put in, I took out, I rewrote, I put in, I took out, I rewrote because I really didn't Mm. want that single scene to overshadow everything else in the book. One thing that the American culture does is that we quick, we will label something abuse, abuse, and then immediately that gets categorized as bad. And then you can't walk it back from that bad, right? And I didn't want that label immediately. So I... Mm. I actually left a lot of the physical stuff out of this book. It's so funny. I mean, not funny, like haha funny, maybe funny, ironic funny, because I have heard that this book is really hard to get through. And it was really tough to write, but I didn't think it would be tough to read because I think in a lot of ways, I'm trying to break cycles in this book. And what I mean by that is I, I try to protect my readers And I'm very intentional about the setting, the story, what I'm saying, and why. And that's, you know, that's also about, I talk about transgenerational trauma in this book, right? The kind of trauma that my grandmother handed down to my mother and my mother handed down to me. And it's, and like, while I was writing the book, I could have handed it down to the readers if that's what I chose to do. But I firmly did not want to do that. And yet the response is still, you know, sometimes this book was so painful to get through. It was painful to read. And and both of those are true. I I will challenge that and say, I don't, you're just telling your story, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, You have a right to tell your story. These are facts. These are actual things that have happened. And I I think it's just, I don't know, overly, I don't even want to say like, why do you feel that you need to protect the reader? I guess might be a question, right? Because this is your story, part of you, or I guess let me, I don't want to make any assumptions. What is the impact that you want this book to have on, uh, I'll make it a two-part question. One, on people in our generation who grew up in a different time when survival was number one and everything else was deprioritized. Mm -hmm. And two, what do you hope this book does for kids going through stuff now, Mm -hmm. right? Because a lot of that mindset has not evolved as much as we'd like Absolutely. to think. Um, what, what, what is the impact of the book that you want to have? I think you, you just pointed at it too, right? We're not as progressive as we think we are. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Because you don't think that this kind of stuff is happening in Queens, and yet they are, right? So, you know, factories being in Long Island City, kids and middle-class families going through trauma and abuse, So I think the first thing is that I was writing against the model minority myth in the sense that Chinese immigrants are hardworking and 
good at math and, you know, it's all tiger moms all the way. And my story is not like that. And so I felt the weight of those pressures to be those things most of my life. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like I couldn't tell my story because that wasn't the story everyone wanted to hear. So I think on a lot of levels, that's why I wrote the story because I disagree with that. And on another level, you know, I spent 10 years writing this book, but the book really came together in 2005 um, after I wrote to child services for my records. When I received the letter, there were so many errors and inconsistencies that it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. They didn't even get my name right. You know, I, I, at that time, I felt like I was going through a really terrible childhood because my father was dead and he abandoned me. And this report was telling me that my father was alive. And so, like, there was very little in the report that was actually true. And that made me really question the system and, you know, the large, the large percentage of children who fall into that same category I, I, I belong to, which is the unfounded category. And, it, you know, I, I wanted to ask larger questions of what abuse looks like within the American culture versus the Chinese culture. You know, in China, there's, I think corporal punishment is still encouraged and, you know, it's not seen as abuse, it's seen as discipline. So I also wanted to shine a light on culture, on the different ways culture sees situations and how, how we can't get out of it too. We're kind of stuck to that. I mean, as children, we're, we're so vulnerable. And I wanted the story to be out there for that reason as well, to really question all of the systems that we're in and really reevaluate, you know, our sense of worth uh, with our parents, with the system, with work, and, you know, also how a trauma from your childhood can follow you into adulthood. And what, what do you do with that trauma? Because it doesn't go away. And, you know, I do want this um, book to also inspire conversation and awareness around like immigration, this crazy, crazy discrimination stuff that's happening now, the racism. And I also want that history to be known more, right? So I feel like our generation, we really didn't, we don't learn, learn it in the history book about the difficulties of being Asian American in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the segregation, the lynching, everything. We couldn't have citizenship. You know, the Immigration Act, that is the only racist law that's ever been put into place federally. And all of that is important history, as I was mentioning before, of our, our very particular history as Asian Americans in this country. So that, that's also another reason why I, I, I wanted our existence to belong in publishing as well. Yeah, 100%. You said the book took 10 years to write. And, and I will... I will say, I think there's never been a better time to be an Asian American author or a storyteller because people want to hear our story. And the the number one message that I try to promote through this and, and through the other speaking that I do is that there is no singular Asian American narrative. And it's extremely dangerous to think that there is and 
these are how stereotypes are born. And these are, you know, this is sort of the, the basis of how uh, discrimination happens, because if you don't fit that, then people get confused. And, and I, I am appreciative of the fact that you wrote your story, because I do also think that it challenges that narrative, as you said, of the successful uh, professionally and just very, very surface level financially and, and professionally, the successful Asian Americans that get featured in magazines and books and stuff. And do we ever really go back to understand what made them them? And, and so I, I am so excited. You have said that you held this story, understandably so, extremely close to your vest for decades. It's been out in the world for about 10 days now. Friends have read it. Other people in your life have read it. What has their reaction been and, and how have you interpreted that? I think it's very shocking for most people. You were saying we probably have a lot in common because we grew up in Queens and um, you went to Bronx Science. I went to Bayside High. Um, I went to Bing, you know, and all of that experience, you know, I have sort of an imposter syndrome. And that imposter syndrome, I think in a lot of ways is gone now that the book is out, which is incredible. I can't, it's just, I can't explain it. It's just, it's just a huge weight lifted off my shoulder. I feel like I'm free to write about something else now because this is finally done because it's felt like a vocation for me. It's felt like a vocation. And even if I didn't want to do it, you know, I showed up every day and, and as difficult as it was to, to hear it and read it, Jerry, it was so, so hard to write. <laughs> it was really hard to write. Um, and, you know, it took a lot of space and contemplating and um, compassion, I think, to get the book to where it is today. Um, and I'm, I feel really proud of myself. And I know a lot of my friends are just so, so happy for me. And I do think that what you were saying about permission, you know, I don't even, I think even among my friends, most of them are not Asian. And I think it gives them permission to try something, to, to take a leap. And, and that makes me so happy that, that I can do that, that this book can do that. So it's not just my achievement, but an achievement for everybody around me. And, you know, I think community, as you've probably gleaned from the book, is so very important to me. And I just, yeah, I'm just soaking it up, <laughs> soaking it up. I love it. I know it's just been 10 days, but I think stories like yours are extremely timeless. And I, I for one, would, would love to have everybody who's listening to this interview check out the book. Yes, it is. It is. This is actually how authors pay their bills, but uh, obviously it's important for Anna to, for professional reasons, but I, you know, this story is an American story. This is a story that so many people, I, I guarantee you in your life have lived a version of, and, and yet the overwhelming majority, 99.999% of the people will never vocalize. And so for, for me, this is inspiring from the perspective that it, allows other people to feel that their story is also validated, even though they may not be this specific story. And and so let's look back on this book, maybe at a 10 and like a 30 years post-publishing. Where do you want this book to have taken you in your storytelling and, and writing journey? 
uh, and the and the impact that uh, it is going to have in our world. I think it's really paved the way um, in terms of what I want to write about in the future as well. You know, I did some research for this book and spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library researching sweatshops and just our history in New York. And it's all based on on these. There's, it, it's not really written about, but there are you know um, data trends and information that you can gather. Um, it's not told in, in story form. And that, so that's what I want to do. Um, I want to put them in story form so that the general public like you and I don't need to be 37 years old before they realize the kind of history we've had. Um, because it also, the, and, and the, there's good reason, there's good reason we feel the way we do. And it's because that history has been silenced and that it's not spoken about. And that's, that's both by Americans and by ourselves, Chinese people, Asian people who don't speak up and, you know, minimize their own everything. Right. And that's not serving us in this culture. So we have to change it in some way. Yeah. And even if you are 37, 38, you're still early. I want to (laughs) say because I, I, I think so. tell that to my back. We, we, well, not physically, but mentally enough to be able to get your stories out there. Well, one last point I want to bring up is in that line, uh, the, the last, I hope it doesn't serve as, as a spoiler, but there's a, the, the last part of the book is when you're able to reconnect with your grandmother. Yes. And it leads us with an extremely optimistic cliffhanger where she begins to tell you stories that she's been waiting her entire life to tell you. Mm -hmm. And so I I think it is an extremely poetic ending that there will always be opportunities to get your stories told, whether you're 80 something years old, 7,000 miles away from where you call home. And so I I just want to encourage everybody out there to do some sort of reflection and and do some sort of cathartic storytelling in, in a format that makes sense for you. For me, it's interviewing people through this medium. For Anna, it was to write a book. For other people, it's creating videos or even just writing in your journal and letting nobody see it. But, you know, we've talked a lot about our collective experiences as Asian Americans and immigrants in this country. And we live in a time where slowly, surely, the institutions that used to govern the permissioning process of storytellers are crumbling. And so... Uh, your story matters. Everybody's story matters. And I guarantee you, no matter how alone you feel, uh, there is a handful of people, dozen, thousands of people who will hear your story and and uh, resonate. And, and so, and I'd love for you to help us close out the show. Uh, we close out the show in our typical fashion, which is through the Dear Asian Americans letter. And so it is a letter to our community from us. Any messages of reflection, hope, inspiration, or just anything you'd like to say, perhaps to a younger version of Anna or somebody else, you know, wanting to tell the stories that they've experienced. And so anything goes, please help us finish up the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I hope that this book allows for and inspires conversations and awareness around larger issues of immigration, of 
discrimination, of racism, but most importantly, I think of compassion. I think compassion for ourselves, kindness to ourselves is something that, you know, Asian Americans don't lean on enough. We're so hard on ourselves, so hard on the people around us. And I think it's time to change that. And I hope that the compassion in this book can help you be more open-minded and compassionate to each other. That's beautiful. Anna, thank you so much, more than anything, for getting your story out there. I I do want to give a quick shout out to Alicia, who sent me an email about, about your book. And I get a lot of pitches, unsolicited pitches in my inbox. She wrote one of the best. Um, really? So, oh, she's yeah, amazing. I, I, think, I, I think sometimes, uh, and rightfully so, because their jobs are pretty demanding, mm-hmm. you know, um, PR folks and other types of publicist related professions, they just throw stuff out there and, and see what sticks. But if somebody understands what the ethos of the show is and understands why a particular guest or a thing would be a right fit, then of course. So shout out to her. Thank you so much for writing the book. I I can't Thank imagine you so much for reading it. I can just tell from your face. I know people can't see your face, but I can tell how sincere you are and how genuine this conversation is. So thank you. And I hope the readers, um, you know, buy the book. Yeah. And, and we've talked about libraries a lot. If, if you can't go to the library. Absolutely. It's it's highly it's everywhere in libraries. So definitely borrow it. Put it on hold. Um, libraries are so close to my heart. One of the first reviews was from Library Journal and that I was just, I feel so nerdy, but I was like jumping up and down because like, you know, that's where I did most of my reading. And to know that this book will be available, you know, at the Flushing Library, at the Aubendale Library, at the Bayside Library is amazing to me. That is awesome. And if you, if you're an educator, uh, if you have, if you're in a position to be able to recommend or inspire people to read this book, uh, please do. I, I think it's incredibly important. Um, and I genuinely hope that as, as tough as it may be, have been for you to write it and for other people to read it, I hope that it begins to provide healing for so many out there. And and ultimately, I, I hope that for some, that it has the power to create conversations, perhaps with people in your life with whom you may not be on speaking terms because of past experiences. And so, Anna, best of luck in, in everything. I, I am so grateful that our paths have crossed. And again, just so grateful for you to uh, have written this story. And best of luck, 10 days in. And, 10 days um, in. And uh, we will hopefully see you with your next books as, as you continue to uh, yes. share your stories with the world. Love to. Hope it's soon. Not 10 years. <laughs> not 10 years. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Another big thanks to Anna for making time uh, for sharing her story with us here on The Asian Americans, Made in China, out uh, wherever you can buy books. And so I highly, highly encourage you to read it. Uh, It's an important story to tell. And uh, it's a great month, uh, September, as we are. Uh, Shang-Chi just uh, just came out over the weekend. Uh, Blue Bayou, as you've heard, is coming out next week. And so uh, let's help amplify all of our stories through books, through movies, through TV shows, through other independent uh, projects, and including our podcast. And so I thank you so much for sticking around and uh, listening all the way to the end. And uh, let's do something fun. If you are listening to this, um, I would love to send you 
a copy of Made in China. And so uh, first person to email me at hello at jerrywan.com or hello at theyearsamericans.com, I will send you a copy of the book. Continue to stay safe. Uh, continue to uh, take care of each other. And uh, I will see you. Uh, we're going to do a double episode this week, so I'll see you on Friday, or you'll listen to me on Friday. And so uh, continue to stay safe, healthy, and happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan of The Aries Americans. See you later. <laughs>